If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Exodus chapter 4. We'll begin reading at verse 18 through 31. Moses at last yielded to God and made his way back to Egypt with this message for Pharaoh. Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go so that he may worship me. Verses 22 and 23. Along the way, Yahweh met Moses and threatened to kill him because he who was about to lead the circumcised people of Israel had failed to circumcise even his own son. Only the quick intervention of Zipporah saved him, for she hastily circumcised her son in obedience to the covenant requirements. The Lord's personal and direct involvement in the affairs of men, verse 21, so that his purposes might be done, is revealed as God informed Moses what would take place. Pharaoh was also warned that his own refusal would bring judgment on him. Verse 23. Previously, Moses had been told that God was certain of Pharaoh's refusal. Exodus 3.19. This interplay between God's hardening and Pharaoh's hardening his heart must be kept in balance. Ten times the historical record notes specifically that God hardened the king's heart and ten times the record indicates the king hardened his own heart. The Apostle Paul used this hardening as an example of God's inscrutable will and absolute power to intervene as he chooses, yet obviously never without loss of personal responsibility for actions taken. The theological conundrum posed by such interplay of God's acting and Pharaoh's acting can only be resolved by accepting the record as it stands, and by taking refuge in the omniscient and omnipotent of God who planned and brought his deliverance of Israel from Egypt, and in so doing also judge Pharaoh's sinfulness, Exodus 9:12. At the edge of the desert, Moses met Aaron. Together they entered Egypt to confront the elders of Israel. After Moses had related all that God had said and done, the elders and the people heard with faith and bowed themselves before the Lord. We begin reading at Exodus chapter 4 at verse 18. This is God's word. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, See that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go 
that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Sipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are the bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. Amen. Please turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. We'll begin reading at verse 22 through 30. The Feast of Dedication, verse 22, also referred to as Hanukkah or Feast of Lights, was a celebration of the Israel, Israelite victory over the Syrian leader Antiochus Epiphanes, who persecuted Israel in the subsequent opening of the temple by Judas Maccabees, Maccabeus. The Jews, in verse 24, were not seeking merely for clarity and understanding regarding who Jesus was, and in light of verses 31 through 39 of the same chapter, but rather wanted him to declare openly that he was the Messiah in order to justify attacking him. Verses 26 and 27 of the same text clearly indicates that God has chosen his sheep, and it is they who believe and follow him. John 6, 37 through 40, 44, and 65. The security of Jesus' sheep, verses 28 and 29, rests with him as the good shepherd who has the power to keep them safe. Neither thieves and robbers, verses 1 and 8, nor the wolf, verse 12 of the same chapter, can harm them. Verse 29 makes clear that the Father ultimately stands behind the sheep's security, for no one is able to steal from God who is in sovereign control of all things. Colossians 3, 3. And finally, in verse 30, both father and son are committed to the perfect protection and preservation of Jesus' sheep. The sentence, emphasizing the united purpose and actions of both in the security and safety of the flock, presupposes unity of nature and essence. We'll begin reading the Gospel of John, beginning at chapter 2 at verse 22. This is God's word. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was, it was, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. 
So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Amen. Turning your Bibles to Psalm 1. While you're doing that, I would point out on the back of your bulletin, underneath the hymn that we just sung, is an excerpt from our confession, a specific excerpt, uh, chapter 1, paragraph 1, the beginning. Uh, What it is, is the statement of our church confession upon the absolute necessity of the scriptures. Uh, While I'm on the subject of our confession... There are 15 copies of our confession back on the, on the rack that's almost in the kitchen. If you have a, a green copy, you have exactly this. Oh, I'm not saying you don't need a brown one too. But in any case, each family ought to have one. This should come up repeatedly this year, and it would be important for you to know what it is you profess to believe about our confession. So uh, they are there. We can get more. Uh, let's, let's see how many we have at the end of the a week or two, and we'll order whatever is desirable after that. If you And when you take the time to read through that particular, cha- that particular paragraph of our confession, I think it will underscore uh, significantly the message this morning. It's a good day to be in the house of the Lord. It's a rather intimate setting today, and that's good, because it is an important message. It's it's a message, not that every sermon is an important message, but we're at a time and a place where tomorrow is a new year. It's like magic. Everything's new. Ah, And we all know we're going to drag all this into tomorrow, and then it's just going to be there with us. But let's at least pretend it's a great opportunity for a new beginning in so many ways. I sent out a message a couple of days ago about Bible reading plans. I suspect everybody in our church has some kind of formal or informal Bible reading plan they follow. And it might be, you know, I haven't read my Bible in a while, I better sit down. And it may be a little more than lucky dipping from time to time, which can be quite dangerous to tell you the truth. But I'm going to just presume everybody has one. But I'm also going to presume that nobody's particularly happy and content with the quantity and quality of Bible reading they did in 2023. And if we're honest, we would admit, you know, 2024 is probably not going to be a whole lot different. But the burden of this message is it it really needs to be. Reading your Bible is critically important. How you read your Bible is critically important. How you approach reading your Bible, what you do with what you read in your Bible is critically important. The reason I had you turn to Psalm 1 
is because Psalm 1 is the preface, the prologue, as it were, to all the Psalms. It's only six verses. Many of you may have actually memorized this particular passage. Uh, I want to go through it as a, as a demonstration to you of something. Now read along with me. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the way in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Now let's just stop right there and take that apart a little bit. This is a description of a man who is blessed. But you note he's blessed for what he doesn't do. He doesn't spend time walking along, listening to the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't spend time stationary in the way of sinners. He's not comfortable in the seat of scoffers. And there are various degrees of there. You're, you're walking, you're standing, you're just sitting down among them. And there's degrees of the companionship. It's not just wicked counsel. It's not just a, a way of life that's sinful. It's actually finding ultimately your place of comfort among those who mock the things of God. Oh, the blessed man is the one that isn't in those categories. Oh, how would you know? Well, let's go a little bit. It says here, as opposed to that, that's what the but's about in verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on that law, he meditates, he thinks, he's turning it over in his mind as kind of a, a way of life for him. So he can identify the counsel of the wicked. He understands the way of sinners when he sees it. He certainly is, started to say, turned off by, repelled by scoffers who mock the things of God. So what's his life like? He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. His leaf doesn't wither. Everything he does prospers. Does it, is that what your life's like? It's, that's not entirely what my life is like. It's not what any of our lives are like. Does that mean we're? Does that mean we're wicked? Does that mean we're lost? What's missing? What's what? Why isn't that going on? And I'm not talking about happiness. I'm talking about being blessed of God, which means you experience a joy regardless of circumstances. Looking back upon the last three months, the homeyers will say, man, were we blessed. But if you went along with them during the three months, and many of you did, because she is communicative, it didn't look like the pass of blessing, did it? In fact, it looked like one pothole, one potential disaster, one catastrophe after another. And yet looking back, that's exactly what it was. Now, verse 4 offers a contrast. The wicked are not that way. They're not having that kind of blessing. They're like chaff 
which the wind drives away. In other words, things happen to them, good things and bad things, but what difference does it make? Now, is that what your life's like? When you look back over the last year, the last 10 years, the last 20 years, and you have high hopes for this and great starts in this and opportunities here and some more. And, you know, what was all that about? And I've certainly experienced that. I look at my life's been a series of wrong turns and dead ends. And yet, it didn't all blow away. Look at verse 5 and 6 here. The wicked will not stand in the judgment. In other words, when judgment day comes, they won't be left standing. They are going to stand before God and be judged, but they won't be left standing. Sinners, in God's eyes, are not going to be in the congregation of the righteous. The Lord knows. He knows the way of the righteous, though we don't necessarily always feel righteous. But if you're looking for certainty in an uncertain world, here's the certainty, that last phrase, the way of the wicked will perish. Everything that's wrong, everything that's against the will of God and against the way of God, ultimately, it will come to nothing. They will perish. The scales will be balanced. The things that you are, don't want somebody to do something about whatever it is. Yes, God will. Nobody gets away with anything. Vengeance is the Lord. Leave it to him. He does it in his own time, in his own way, and it's absolutely thorough. And it's absolutely just. Now what I've done in about five minutes there is read over a very short portion of Scripture, separate it into a couple of component parts, made a couple of observations about it, uh, asked a couple of questions to prompt your thinking, and, and that's a way of reading your Bible. Now, you'll have a little more, more problem doing that with one of those long genealogies, or the, the names and numbers of all the priests that are being recounted again in, in Nehemiah somewhere, or Ezra somewhere. Uh, but there ought to be a lot of times when you come to a passage and, and that's exactly the way you ought to think it through. Well, let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the gift of the words of life. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit to illuminate our understanding, to illuminate the truths of the word of life. We thank you for the opportunities we have to read, to study, to meditate upon, to learn, to be taught the truths of the scripture. But Lord, most of all, we, we thank you for the fact you open our eyes to see these things. And we pray, Lord, in the coming moments, we'll have a, a renewed sense of the privilege we have to read our Bibles and a, in a sense, a holy hunger to have a more intimate relationship with our Bibles in the coming year. For our good and your glory, in Jesus Christ's name, amen. Let me ask this, what's the important skill, this is a rhetorical question, like most of them from this position, what's the most important skill or ability you've ever been taught? And if you think about it, there's a lot of things you've been taught. You didn't come out knowing how to ride a bicycle. All right. uh, 
I suppose 150 years ago, learning to ride a horse and shoot would probably be a pretty important thing to learn. Today, not so much. But you learn things like how you ought to relate to people that are bigger than you. Probably the hard way. Uh, how to how to relate to how to respect your elders. Uh, you learn table manners. You know how to use a knife and fork and spoon. Exactly what they were for. And you know, as I was putting this, I was thinking about how I learned that. Did the little kids still have pushers? It was a little handle and had a little a little blade like a sideways knife. And if you had a little fork, you used the sideways knife to push <laughs> to, to push things under the fork. Hey, I probably still got it somewhere. <laughs> I haven't used it in years. <laughs> you learn to say, you learn good manners. And you, and you use them occasionally. <laughs> yeah. You ever considered what a significant thing it is that you learned how to read? I mean, there's with the very few exceptions in this room. There's nobody that can't read. I mean, because we all can, we don't think much about it. But do you realize what a phenomenal thing it is that we're gathered in a room with people that aren't really related to one another except in the Lord, and everybody in the room can read? That is really unusual in the history of mankind upon the earth. And why did that come about? I mean, what was that important? What, who organized all that? And those are philosophical questions for another time in reality, but let's face it, the fact, there's not a mortal creature besides man that can read. And yet, we all can. Now, some of us may read, may read better than others, there's some of us that may read deep theology. There may there's others that perhaps read soup cans. But everybody can read to a certain level. That's a phenomenal gift. And the fact that we're the only mortal creatures that can do it, do you think that's significant? You think you think that's just that's just one of those happenstances that nature creates from time to time? Like a platypus? I doubt it. I think it's very, very significant. Last week's sermon was entitled The Incarnation of the Son of God in the Gospel of John. It began by pointing out that in John 1, 1 through 3, in the very beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and very quickly we determined the Word is another name for at least one person in the Godhead. And then we read that he was in the beginning with God, so it really wasn't God, it was the other person in the Godhead. And then we read that all things were made through the Word, and nothing that was made was made except through the Word. So everything that is ultimately is sourced first in God, but made through the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, who's known as the Word. And then in John 1.14 we read that that word that was there from the beginning and through everything came through, that word became flesh. And he dwelt among us. And as he grew in stature and favor with men and women, you know, he actually was taught to read. 
Did he already know everything? Yes. In his human nature, he was taught to read. And we know of at least one time where he wrote something on the ground. And he quoted scripture he was taught to read and remember. Think about that. And you've been taught to read and to read scripture. And you have the ability to remember the things that you read most of the time. When the word became flesh and dwelt among us, there were men there that say they saw his glory. It was full of grace. It was full of truth. You can read. The second person to Godhead, our Redeemer, is known as the Word. Now keeping that in mind, look with me at Hebrews 1. And Hebrews 1 tells us, Looking back, whoever the author of Hebrews is, he writes that long ago, many times, many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these latter days, in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Now we know the son is the word through whom all things were created. But this son was the one whom he'd appointed to be the heir of all things. Not only did he create everything, but he ultimately is the possessor of all things. And it is through him he created the world. And you notice there, there's a phenomenal connection there to the Gospel of John, except I would point out the Gospel of John was likely written a couple of decades after this epistle to the Hebrews. So this isn't new truth. This is revealed truth preserved in a number of places and ways. And of course, what follows in Hebrews is a comparison between first Christ and the angels of God. And the author points out they're all clearly inferior. They they are mighty and phenomenal individuals, creatures, created beings. But they're all clearly inferior to Christ. And ultimately, because this is the epistle to the Hebrews, by the time we reach chapter 3, the comparison is being made between Christ... And Moses, the lawgiver himself. Look with me at verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, as he's not just writing to Jews, he's writing to Jewish believers, consider Jesus. He is the apostle, the sent one, and the high priest of our confession. Look how he describes him. He was faithful to him who appointed him. Well, the one that appointed him is, of course, the one who sent him, who's God the Father. But he also goes on to say in verse 2, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. There's the comparison. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more glory than the actual house itself. Pretty easy to understand what's being said there. And then verse 4 says, of course, every house has been built by someone, but the builder of all things, that's God. And again, you know, that John 1 passage just jumps out at you. There was nothing, and then there was everything there is, and all of that came, was sourced in God, but came through the Son. Verse 5, 
Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. He was foretelling things that have come to pass. But Christ is, and I would add, also faithful over God's house. He's not a servant in that house like Moses. He's faithful as a son, the text tells us. Now, what is God's house? What is the household of God? We have at least three passages in the New Testament that define it for us. Ephesians 2.19 says that as believers, we're no longer strangers and aliens. We're fellow citizens with all the saints and all the members of the household of God. Doesn't matter what race you are, what what quote, gender you are these days, though there is a limit on two, uh, but you're, you're members of the household of God. In 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul writes, Timothy said, look, I might not be able to get there in, in the time that I want to. I, if I'm delayed, I want to make sure you know how to behave, how you ought to behave in the household of God. And then he says what that household is, is the church of the living God. It's the pillar, the buttress, the ground of truth. And perhaps most sobering at all, 1 Peter 4.17 tells us when the, there's, going to come be, there's going to come a time of judgment. And that judgment will begin in the household of God. But even that's been set up as a contradiction because then he goes on to say, but if it begins with us, if judgment begins with the household of God, which is the church of the living God, which are the people of God, what will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel of God? Those that are outside the household of God, far, far worse than any judgment that believers will experience. Of course, I could have just, we could have just looked at the the rest of verse 6 in Hebrews 3. Where is us? He's faithful as a son over the house. Well, what's the house? We're the house. We are his house. When you were saved, when you placed your faith, because God gave you the faith, when you repented of your sins, because God gave you repentance, and became a believer, you became a child of God. Jesus taught that God the Father became your heavenly Father. When he prayed, when, he, when they asked him, teach us how to pray. And he, he said, okay, pray this way. Our Father, which art in heaven. Now, if he had said, my Father, which art in heaven, they probably would have got that in the, in the sense that they expected him. But when he said, our Father, that if they were thinking, and I think they probably were by this time, that would blow a first century Jew's mind. What do you mean, our Father? He's the ultimate other. How could we be related to him? He said, our Father, which art in heaven. And we, together with all true Christians, are the household of God. But looking again at verse 6, in chapter 3, 
We read that Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we're his house. And then there's this if. This is this could be one of those ifs that become a sense. But it's not necessarily a sense because it is a conditional if. If we hold, if indeed we hold fast our confidence in him. That's, that's in him, in his words, in his works, his finished works. Our boasting, our hope is settled on him. If, we, if you come to the end of your life and you have the time for the question, the Q&As that that hopefully would go on. And people are saying, are you sure when you breathe your last breath, you'll be gathered in the arms of Jesus or however it's expressed? If your answer is, I always went to West Upper Baptist Church. I was on the rolls. I had a confession. I got to where I could memorize our covenant. I was baptized by some notable somebody. I've got a Bible about 15 or 20 really notable fundamentalist signatures in it. There was a time when I thought that might be evidence I was saved. <laughs> There's all kinds of things that we can say, yeah, but I'm sure because of this and this and this. Or is your confidence in the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was sent to do something and he did it and the something In your case, in a memorial involved, he gave himself to redeem you from the consequences of your sin. See, that's where your hope is. Not your good works in any sense. Oh, how would you know that if we didn't have a Bible that somebody could read? And what a phenomenal thing that you can read it. Now let's go on a little bit, because verse 6 sets up a conclusion. And I know it's a conclusion because verse 7 opens with the word, therefore. See, the author's been been laying out something right from the beginning here in Hebrews. That Jesus Christ is this unique individual. And he's done this phenomenal thing. And then he says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today... If you hear his voice. That's as far as we're going in Hebrews 3. But hang on that phrase. Today, if you hear his voice. Because when it says the Holy Spirit says, that's present tense. For those of us that were asleep in that, in that session of freshman English, high school or college, That means present tense, right now. As the Holy Spirit is saying right now, today, if you hear his voice. And then, of course, there's going to be a quote from Psalm 95. But the Holy Spirit is saying right now, the Holy Spirit is speaking right now, like the prophet's. I mean, there's hundreds of times in your Bible, particularly if you have a King James Bible, thus saith the Lord. Always that's present tense. Occasionally there'll be, well, as God said, but that's relatively rare. It's usually, this is what the Lord says about this. And as you read your Bible, you're going to see a lot of that in the coming year. 
And what he says here is today, if you hear his voice, when you open your Bible, tomorrow when you start that new Bible reading program, this one's going to be different. Well, it will be different if you approach it, I think the way we're going to lay it out here, if you open your Bible and you're running your eyes along the lines of that page and you're comprehending to the best of your ability what those words mean, you know, you actually are hearing the voice of God. You're hearing God speak. Your Bible, again and again, affirms that. And here we're in the New Testament. It says, today, if you hear His Word, today, you are listening to the Word of God. Brother Walt read to us from John 10. One of the things Jesus said was, My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. Do you have a hearing ear to the voice of God? And does your hearing ear lead to you having following feet? Because that's what God's sheep do. That's what the sheep that Jesus has called to himself do. They hear his voice and they follow me. Now, you're not going to hear it audibly. It's written before you and you've been taught to read it. And you understand it when you hear it because the Spirit of God illumines your understanding to hear it. Now, there's all kinds of degrees of this, but that's the way it works. So why is it important that you read your Bible? So you can hear the voice of God. And when you open your Bible and you read those words, you are hearing his voice. And we need to remind ourselves of that, and we need to remind one another of that. And as we do, the importance of reading your Bible will become more and more Obvious. Now, the passage being quoted by the Holy Spirit when he present tense says that in Hebrews 3 is Psalm 95. So let's turn there for a moment or two. Uh, If you had a little footnote there, it probably links you over to Psalm 95, maybe verses 7 through 11 or something like that. Uh, uh, We're going to consider verses... 7 through 11, but I want to set a little bit of context first by backing up to verse 6. If you're going to get what is absolutely necessary out of your Bible reading, starting tomorrow and going through 2024, here's the way to approach it. Verse 6. O come, let us worship and bow down, Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. This is not saying kneel before the Bible, though I know we've heard some missionary bios quoted that people that would kneel and read their Bible, and there's certainly nothing wrong with that, but you're not kneeling before the Bible. You're kneeling before the God who's speaking to you through the Bible. God's voice is speaking when we read our Bible. We want to hear that voice. We want to respond in accordance with that voice's will. So, verse 6 says, Let us worship. Let us bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord because he's our maker. And then verse 7 says, For he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture. And we are the sheep of his hand. And then it says, today, 
if you hear his voice. Now, the author of Hebrews just said, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice. But you go back to context and you realize who ought to be hearing that voice. Those who recognize he's their God, that they're his people of his pasture, that they are the sheep of his hand. He is our shepherd. We who have this privilege of being able to read our Bibles and hear his voice are his sheep. Who chose the analogy of shepherd and sheep to describe believers? It isn't the author of oh, Tim Keller, whatever, who wrote Philip Keller, I guess it was. It isn't Philip Keller, it's God. It's Jesus. They, they came up with this analogy. Isaiah didn't just discover it. It was given to him. We are, we are sheep. He is our shepherd. The 23rd Psalm wasn't a revelation to God. It was the revelation of God. The Lord is our shepherd. So we will not want. He is going to lead us into green pastures. He is going to lead us beside still waters. He's going to use his rod and his staff to correct us from time to time. But he's doing all that because he cares for us. He has response. He takes responsibility for us. And he's going to lead us. Now remember the passage that Brother Walt read out of the Old Testament. Moses has got this revelation from God. He's got Aaron to come along beside him now. He's got had that thing with the circumcision of his boy. He's going back to the people of God. That passage ended with... Moses is going to the elders of the people in the captivity of, of Egypt, telling them what God has said. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, in other words, he was with them, he knew what was going on, and he was going to intervene and deal with the situation, which he always is, They bowed their heads and they worshipped. That's the way that passage concludes. Now I'm just saying, cut out everything ahead of that. Come to your scriptures when you read your Bibles, recognizing you're coming to God himself. You're coming to hear his voice. Expect him to direct your path. Expect him to give you authoritative guidance. Understand, he's a benevolent monarch. He's on your side. He loves you. He set his love upon you before the foundation of the world. And what he has to tell you in his word that day and every day is how to live a life that's pleasing to him and ultimately best for you. And what's that look like? Turn with me over to Psalm 103. Let's begin in verse 19 by making sure we understand the context of all this. Verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens. We know a lot more about what happened when Jesus ascended. We know what happened the other side of the cloud. We have passages like Psalm 110 that really describe, sit here at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. Uh, 
We have passages like Psalm 2 in which I've already set my king upon my holy hill. Right? The Lord looks down upon the affairs of men that rise and laughs. So we, we know how this story is going to end. Well, we need to remind ourselves the Lord, verse 19 of 103, has established his throne in the heaven. He has a kingdom that that throne represents that rules over all. He is absolutely sovereign. Goes on to say, so bless the Lord, O you his angels. And that could just be messengers. Doesn't have to be those heavenly spiritual beings. But bless him, you angels, you mighty ones who do his word. Now the holy angels do his word. They are ministering spirits to the saints of God like you and I. Bless the Lord, verse 21, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, everything he created in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. It gets very, very personal at that point. We need to approach the reading of Scripture as an act of worship, as coming before the voice of our Creator, our Defender our Redeemer, and our friend. As the one who is absolutely sovereign over everything, including the minutest aspect of our being, of our lives, of our circumstances. And we ought to come with an expectation that he has a message for us every day of absolute vital interest and importance to us. Back up now to verse 13 and look at the description of how much he cares for each of his people. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord. That's the way the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. We're not talking about your earthly father. You may have good or bad or strange memories of that. I have almost no memory of my own earthly father. We're not talking about an earthly father. We're talking about a heavenly father. We're talking about father perfected. We're talking about the model from which fathers are all lessers. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. He knows our frame. He knows what's going on in your life, in your body. He knows you intimately. And don't worry, he remembers you're nothing but dust. I mean, you're right down to it, from the dust you came to the dust you're returning. He's got plans for that dust. He's got plans for it in this life, and he has plans for it after this life. He knows it that intimately. Verses 15 and 16 tell us, as for man, yeah, his days are like the grass. In in the eyes of God, it's it's nothing. Flourish like a flower one day, the wind passes over it, it's gone. It's a place that nobody remembers it. And we don't remember more than a generation or two. And then we start lying about the previous one. That's the way men are. But look at verse 17. The steadfast love of the Lord. That but is a contrast to man in his brief span of time. But the steadfast love of the Lord, that's from everlasting, that's all the way that way to everlasting, all the way that way. And everything in between. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. 
and his righteousness is to our, our grandchildren, our children's children. None of that would be of any importance to us. We'd have, we wouldn't have any credibility. We wouldn't, we wouldn't place any credibility in promises like that if God wasn't all-powerful. But he is. If he wasn't totally sovereign over all things, but he is. If we lived in a world that random chance produced species, and just random events happen from anywhere, and who knows what's going to happen next, because there's really nothing in control. You're just at the mercies of whatever somebody or something wants to do. If you lived in that kind of universe, you ought to be scared to death all the time. But we don't live in that universe. We live in a universe created by a benevolent, loving God who created it purposefully and created mankind in his own image that they might magnify his name with their lives. And all around us we see the failure to do that. And yet we've been given the ministry of allowing the Spirit of God to magnify God the Father, God the Son, in and through our lives for the glory of His name in this time and place, among this group of people, among the families of this church, among the families that this church is connected to in redemptive moments and circumstances as we go about our lives in Little Suffolk, Virginia. It's not an insignificant thing that we're here on the cusp of 2024. And everybody in the room, well, maybe one or two, can read their Bibles. What an inexpressible gift it is. So uh, the most have remembered passages like, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him. He'll direct your path. You think that was just for then? Isn't that a a good thing to be thinking about going into 2024? It's a good day to be in the house of the Lord. It's a good day to be a Christian. God has plans for 2024, and it's our privilege to be a part of it. Let's pray. Father and our God, we thank you for the gift of time. We thank you for the ability we have to, to come in the... Come in the quiet of a moment into your presence to hear your voice, a still small voice, or perhaps the voice that's shouting through circumstances that calls our name, gets our attention, presses upon our conscience, and directs our path. We pray, Lord, in the coming year we would hear your word, we would respond to your word by faith, by obedience, with reverence and joy with the expectation that you are using us for our good and your glory. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.